Hello and welcome to Success Stories. I'm Kendra Hall, Chief Storytelling Officer at Success Magazine, and this is the podcast where we sit down with the brightest stars and the boldest thought leaders as they share their stories so you can create your own success story. I'll admit, the reason I reached out to this next guest is because I saw that she was the CEO of one of my favorite companies called Glam Squad. Glam Squad, if you haven't heard of it before, is like the Uber for hair and event makeup. It was such an innovative idea. I used it a couple times here in New York City and immediately fell in love. Now, throughout the course of my research and then, of course, our conversation, I found that this next guest is no longer in that role. And in fact, that was several roles ago. And that's the thing about this woman is she has had success after success, done great things and then moved on and done great things somewhere else. And I feel like it's really easy to not necessarily get stuck, but to stay somewhere because it's working, because maybe there's fear that it won't work somewhere else. If you've ever felt that way, not necessarily stuck, but the desire to stay, this is the conversation for you. Let's get to it. A Harvard-educated serial entrepreneur, Alexandra Wilkes-Wilson, first hit it big with the founding of Gilt in 2007, a flash sale company specializing in luxury goods. Gilt became an early story of success in e-commerce, with Alexandra going on to be a role model for fellow women tech founders. Alexandra has thrived at the leading edge of digital with recent successes in the on-demand economy, artificial intelligence, and machine learning. She's advised scores of new and developing businesses, served on the boards of public and private companies, and is continuing to create new endeavors and new success stories. Alexandra, welcome to success. We are so excited to hear your story. Thanks for having me, Kendra. Oh, it's such a, I know you're, these are very busy times and you are a very busy woman. And I am just, I'm really excited that people get a chance to, to hear your path to success and all of the different twists and turns that it's taken over the years. Right now you are in um, Florida. Is that right? We actually left New York City in June. Um, we moved full-time from from Manhattan, the Upper East Side, to Key Biscayne, Florida, which is basically Miami, but if you've never been to Key Biscayne, it's, it's this special uh, island on the beach, and within 15 minutes, you're in, in kind of the heart of Miami, but it's a special place. You know, I want to m- maybe um, later, I think that's an interesting... That's also an interesting story conversation to have. I think right now we're recording this. It's mid-December 2020. We are still in a pandemic. And I feel like there are so many people who have been, who have taken these past eight months, nine months, I'm not really doing the math anymore, um, to make big life-changing, I know, I don't even want to say the math, to make big life-changing decisions. Um but I know that this isn't the first life-changing decision you've made. But what I actually want to do, Alexandra, is start all the way back at 
the beginning. Like we heard, we heard in your bio, all of your business accomplishments, you are like the ultimate entrepreneur and taking on different roles in so many different types of companies. And now um, raising your own, you know, your own investment firm. Is that, is that correct? Is that the right way to say it? It's called Clarity. It's a growth equity fund. Growth equity fund. I mean, all the different steps along your journey, but I want to go all the way back to when you were young, because all of these, not that you're not young now, you can't see her, but she's absolutely beautiful. Um, but, but when you were a kid, right, I, and all the conversations that I've had with these achievers, there's been a little, um, it's like there's a moment or, or several of them in their youth when they were younger kids where little spots of evidence that that maybe what you're doing now where where those skills were were present. Do you remember growing up any of those? I mean, you probably didn't know you were going to become this incredible entrepreneur, but were there moments where you saw these skills that you have now really at play even as a kid? Well, that's a good question. I, I mean, I would say that there are definitely a lot of personality traits that have remained. And it's funny because I have two children and I see some of these traits in them as well. Um, so in my case, you know, I, I always loved meeting people and I loved mm -hmm. understanding where they came from. You know, I've always been curious about languages. I actually speak five languages. My mother's from Cuba, so my Spanish is 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 like my English. And you know, I I was always fascinated to understand people's stories. And I think um, that's certainly something that has stayed consistent. And I love um, trying to keep in touch with people when I make connections. Um, you know, as a kid, it was getting their their addresses and writing letters and postcards over the summer as a kid you know nowadays my my uh, adult version would be connecting on linkedin or saving their contacts in my phone and um and whatnot but always loved meeting people was always curious um adventurous on the one hand and and, and not adventurous on the other hand so on the one hand you know, always wanted to try new things new foods travel to new places um, but then, you know, on the other hand, some kind of oxymorons, like I don't like to drive super fast. So that's been kind of interesting in my move to New York, uh, because people, I mean, sorry, that's been interesting from my move from New York to Miami yeah. because people, people drive like maniacs sometimes, but, um, but I'm learning, I'm learning, you know, I'm, I'm a New Yorker at heart in, in the one hand, um, oh, in terms of public transportations you know, kind of my normal jam, but, but we've gotten used to life here and I have a super souped up golf cart that I drive around the key and, uh, you know, life is, life is pretty good. It's busy, but the pace has certainly changed, um, it, you know, it's related to COVID and then also related to life decisions our family made. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that's interesting because I, in, you know, in doing my research, I know that one of the things that you credit to your success in business is your ability, your desire, and your recognition of how important it is to keep connections with people um, because you just never know when that connection is going to come up later. Are, th are there any connections that, that 
serendipitously, right? Like you, it was someone from years ago that suddenly who they are and what you needed in your business role came together. Do you remember any of those? Happens honestly all the time. And I try to believe in karma and I think about metaphors like a boomerang, you know, you do, you know, you reached out to me. I don't know you. I've never met you. You had an ask. I thought it was interesting. And I figured, yeah, sure. I'd love to meet Kendra. And and here we are recording a podcast. And so, you know, I also functionally for my career, so much of what I do has, has had to kind of put me out there in terms of um, cold calling and reaching out in uncomfortable ways. And, and, you know, I'm sure we'll get into that in, in terms of different parts of my career. But um, so when other people do that to me, I mean, I'm not saying I respond to every cold call because I don't, but um, because I can't, you know, right. hours in the day. Um, but, you know, certain times I, I definitely, um, you know, will respond and, and react. And, you know, again, I, it goes back to, I love meeting new people. I love building connections. I love learning. Um, and I like genuinely putting people together. So uh, it's funny because my husband and I have tried repeatedly to put people together and to, with a matchmaking angle. Yeah. We're terrible at that. We're really <laughs> bad at that. And, and that's probably, you know, for another podcast related to how you matchmake people, which I do not have that skill for at all. Um, but I'm really good at putting people together in terms of business relationships or professional relationships. and. And maybe that's because it's a little more rational than, than um, you know, love. Um, but, yeah. but I love connecting people. So, you know, I always say to to entrepreneurs and people who um, reach out to me for for advice, and I say, you know, if you don't ask, you don't get. And and that really, in my opinion, is true. You know, you, you don't have to ask in an aggressive, pushy way. But if there are um, ways in which other people can help you, that really are easy for them to do, then, you know, I'm just a, a big fan of, of um, not being shy, asking for help. And then when people ask you for help, certainly responding or even being proactive. Um, I got interviewed for a, a book a few weeks ago by this awesome, uh, awesome guy who I had been introduced to through a friend. His name's Chris Tuff. And at the end of the interview, he um, you know, he turned off the recording and he's like, okay, now how can I help you? How can I be helpful? <laughs> and it was awesome. I was like, oh, well, you tell me, how can you be helpful? Yeah. I don't know about you. And, and he turned out to be incredibly helpful. And then, you know, I turned it around. How can I help you? And he said, well, if you know anyone awesome to interview for the book, let me know. And of, of course I know awesome people. So, um, you know, what goes around comes around. Yeah. Um, would you... So, so let's go back to, you mentioned, um, your career. Let's, let's, let's do a, a tracing, like a, a revisiting your steps. Like how did this, how did your career begin and what were the various iterations? And then we can dive into a few of them. You don't have all day. Um, I know. <laughs> right after, right out of Right out of college, I went into investment banking, which is, you know, what many, uh, what many people did back then. Um, mm -hmm. You know, coming out of Ivy League schools, and I worked for three years at Merrill Lynch, um, and it was, you know, it was a lot of the stereotype of long hours, working hard, etc. And there were a lot of positive things that came out of that. I actually made incredible friends, 
Um, I got to travel a ton. Uh, you know, at the time, I thought I was so sophisticated and mature, but in retrospect, I was 22 years old and oh, truly wow. traveling the globe. So that's pretty special um, in retrospect. Uh, but I never felt like I was instinctively that good at the job, so to speak. I mean, I'm, I might have been better as a as, as a senior person in investment banking, but as an analyst responsible for cranking out models 24 hours a day, you know, that, that probably wasn't um, Alexandra's superpower. Um, but I did learn and I spent m most of my investment banking experience was international. And so that aspect I really enjoyed. I got to use my languages. I got to mm. connect with people from throughout Latin America. Then I, I spent two years in London with Merrill Lynch. Um, so that was special and, and got to, you know, use my languages. And then after that went to business school and that was a really deliberate shift for me coming out of finance and taking those two years, which getting an MBA is really kind of the most selfish moment in, in, you know, in time for, for so many of us, I was unmarried, obviously no children. And all I got to do was learn, think about myself go on amazing trips with the school and with friends yeah. from the school and, and just obsess over, you know, what do I want to be when I grow up? And so it was a special time, obviously business school. One of the best things about business school is building an incredible network um, on top of, on top of what you learn. And, yeah. uh, you know, what, I, I certainly um, try to leverage that network whenever possible. You know, I think that's interesting. There's a lot of uh, conversation right now, especially with the pandemic, especially with everything that's happening about the value of higher education. Um, I was just interviewing Allie Webb uh, yesterday for the podcast and she shared, you know, she often gets asked to speak at colleges and has to say, I never went to college, um, you know, so, so there's one side of that story, but then, you know, this, this, your side of the value of the, the business school education, would you, any thoughts on that with the current conversation that's happening around the value of education in general? Education is very personal and, and a lot of it probably has to do with with one's values and family mm -hmm. values and upbringing. And, you know, in my family, my mother was a teacher. Um, her mother was a teacher. They, you know, she, she left Cuba, basically, um, my mother in 1962 with nothing and had, had to st start over um, mm -hmm. and she was a teenager. And, you know, something she always told me and I'll never forget it. And I believe in it. And I will say that to my children and anyone who asks me is like so many terrible things can happen in the world and to one's circumstances, but your education is something you keep forever. Yes. You know, that is yours. You might lose, you know, I don't know, your house can burn down. You might lose every material possession you, you have, you know, there could be a hurricane or a flood or a fi you know, fires, like all these terrible things that are happening. Um, in the world and but your education is yours forever so that's something that mm -hmm. really matters to me so personally I believe in higher education yeah. but I think if you're going to do something like go to graduate school you just have to be really honest with yourself of what you're hoping to get out of it mm -hmm. what the opportunity cost is obviously it's a it's a financial commitment um, you can take loans for for higher education which is terrific but they do have to get paid off over yeah. time. you have to you have to think through that 
Um, so I would never judge a person based mm-hmm. on their education and, and, you know, how, how, where they went to school or what they achieved. But for me, part of my own feeling of personal success had to do with my own education and trying to, um, you know, do the best that I could in school. And I always put a ton of pressure on myself getting top grades and, um, you know, just, um, I don't think school necessarily came so naturally to me, but I just worked incredibly hard and, um, have been very fortunate in going to, you know, arguably some of the best schools in, in the country. And I'm very, very appreciative that of that and try to give back and try to, um, mentor others, either applying to school or in the schools, you know, I'm, I'm pretty involved in entrepreneurship at Harvard business school. I've done a lot at Harvard undergrad, um, to support entrepreneurship, especially among women. I mean, when we founded Guilt in 2007, I just really didn't know of that many female founders. And yes. now there's so many incredible ones who've had tremendous success. And, you know, anytime I, I read about a female founder achieving and following their dreams and um, pursuing a vision, you know, I applaud them wholeheartedly. I applaud the guys too, but especially... Yeah. <laughs> No, I think that's, I think that's so, um, one of the things that I love about having these conversations is, uh, you know, we're, we're speaking to people who are at the top of their game. And the thing that I see over and over again is ownership over the decisions that were right for them. And I think that's an important thing for anyone listening. There's a lot of noise about what you should do, what you shouldn't do, what's right, what's wrong. Um, and the, the value of your values is still is still at the top. So now you mentioned guilt. Like you have some pretty you have some pretty big names under your belt, and in terms of ideas that you came up with, uh, companies that you were the head of. Tell me about. Can we go back to? Can we go to guilt right now? I want to hear this story so bad because this was yours, right? We were a team of five co-founders. I, yep. you know, I think throughout my career, I've never done anything alone. I love being part of a team. I think I get my energy off of being part of a team and being with others. I'm not a solo individual contributor. Contributor. I like to be part of a team. So yeah. there were five, five of us, um, and we launched Guilt back in 2007. And I mean... I don't even know if I fully appreciated how incredible of an experience it was while I was going through it. I think I did, yeah. um, but in retrospect, it was it was um, a very special seven years of my career. Certainly, it put me on the map in, in many respects. I learned so much, and the convergence of online shopping and technology and fashion and so many changes that all happened in that um, those early days of guilt were really just, it was, it was an amazing time. I actually wrote a book with Alexis Maybank, who, um, was and continues to be one of my very best friends. She was, she was my co-founder. Um, so the two of us wrote a book together by invitation only how we built guilt and changed the way millions shop. And it came out 2012. So in many respects, it's super dated, um, in terms of advice we share. Uh, but in, in other respects, it certainly is applicable advice. The reason we wrote the book was really to encourage entrepreneurship around yeah. for others and, 
and share very honestly the things we did really well and intelligently and where we were creative and then challenges we had. We're pretty open about the challenges that, that we had and building a company uh, is not easy. Um, it, there's a reason most companies fail, most startups fail, I should say. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, when you put in blood, sweat and tears and you don't take no for an answer, you know, that, that's pretty, pretty powerful. So tell me, how did this, like, I want to, I'm picturing like the, like how the five of you like sitting together where you, you know, like I'm picturing you somewhere in like, I don't know, Soho, like sitting, sitting at a restaurant, like, wait, Hey, we had this idea. Like, do you remember, because you, this is something that didn't exist before like this hadn't been done you were creating the five of you this totally new thing right like what do you remember how the conversation even even came up where did this all where did guilt start um and and I think what you said is really important for your listeners to to just take a moment and and pause and think back to 2007, you know, how were you shopping? How were you consuming? Did you even have an iPhone? Um, when we launched Guilt, you know, we were, it was all online, which meant people were accessing us really through the computer. And then, oh, you're right. We were, you know, we were very innovative as a company in terms of launching the Guilt app for, for the iPhone. And then I remember 2010, I remember this vividly because I was on maternity leave with my son. Um, you know, the office sent me an iPad to my home and, um, and guilt had, had, when the iPad launched, the guilt app was on that iPad. And, um, I remember them sending me an iPad and I was like, okay, what, you know, what, what do I do with this? Like, how do I use this? <laughs> it's such a part of, of life, but, um, so many things changed so much, um, during, during that time, but you know, we were five co-founders and one of the things that worked so well among the five of us is we had very different skill sets, superpowers, experience, and we didn't get in each other's way. It was really clear to us, you know, how could we add value to the company and pursue this vision? Um, And the vision was really, you know, in my words, I would say, bringing the idea of an amazing New York sample sale online. over you know quickly the media started using the term uh flash sales you know that guilt was the pioneer of flash sales we we didn't i didn't even know that term Uh, i was calling them online sample sales but basically it was pretty innovative at the time to to be taking excess inventory so we were competing with the the big guys like the tj maxes and the lomans and the century 21s um, who were all a big deal um, back then, and you know, we were we were just a little upstart, and we wanted to sell the most desirable brands. And we started with some American brands. Zach Posen was our first brand we ever sold, and that, that was a really big deal. And then we we just tried and tested and tried to photograph um, all our inventory and our merchandise beautifully. Um, you know, not the way you'd see it hanging, you know, inside out, upside down with deodorant marks in a in a typical off-price environment mm-hmm. we were photographing beautifully on models and even full-price luxury retailers at that time what they weren't shooting on models you know they were either shooting, shooting flat or on mannequins and we thought you know let's make this experience special and beautiful and bring it to life and so anyway I can go on and on um I know 
we probably don't have all day, but many of the decisions we made and we tested and, um, you know, were, were special. And I think to bring it to today, 2020, so many of the things we did back then um, and didn't do back then would seem kind of funny. So we didn't use performance marketing and digital marketing for the first several years um, of guilt. You know, the way we started, it was really by invitation only and the invites came through email and we were trying to be in some cases the antithesis of a shopping experience you'd find on an Amazon where search, you know, Amazon is all about incredible search and guilt for many years. I forget how many, but I would say maybe around at least four, we didn't even have a search bar or a search tool on guilt. It was just like, we curated what we found to be the best of the best, the best brands, the best assortments at the best prices and, and created this kind of urgency appointment shopping every day, 12 o'clock noon, Eastern standard time, the sales would go live. And many of our loyal shoppers had this fear of missing out every day routinely they would check the site really quickly see if there's anything they'd want to buy maybe throw things into their cart maybe not um and the reality is in the beginning because we were a startup and we were figuring things out as we moved along we often didn't have nearly enough inventory for the demands that the consumer had so guilt was always a story as many companies are of supply and demand and balancing supply and demand. And, you know, you learn quickly, you don't always have control over either supply or demand. And, and so anyway, many, many stories and memories along, along the way um, about that experience, but it was, it was pretty amazing. When, when was it, do you remember? Um, I mean, now that you're, now that you're, you're talking about it, I remember like getting that email or like the, the noon Eastern time. And I would be in Pacific time at that time. So it was like, it was such a big, it was such a big deal. It was, um, what was it? Do you remember having a moment uh, in that experience where you were like, oh my gosh, this is really working. This is happening. Like, what was the day you were like, I think we really, I think we really have something here were many moments of that. The first sale we did, we had a, a pinch me moment because we thought it would be a little bit more like a brick and mortar sample sale where we opened up the, the virtual doors for our first sale, 9 a.m. Eastern Standard. We just picked a time. We thought 9 a.m. sounded good and it was supposed to last, um, I think it was 36 hours. And we figured people would check out the site throughout the day. What we didn't anticipate was that everyone, you know, flooded the gates exactly when when the sale started. And that meant that people on Pacific Standard Time were logging in at 6 a.m. And our very first purchase was, was someone in California. And, you know, we looked at each other like, oh, wow, people are waking up. <laughs> 6am to, to shop for designer dresses like this is crazy and it sold out you know very quickly I think um, within hours and so even though it was a, in retrospect I think we had $9,000 worth of inventory which was peanuts compared to where we got to very very quickly um, it just you know we definitely had a moment of like this could work and and lots of learnings you know our first sale we divided and conquered among the five of us co-founders between um, Mike and Fong, our two engineers, co-founders, and and Alexis and I. You know, um, you know, 
two of us were covering email, one of us was was covering the phone, and we just thought people were going to call and, and chat. I don't even think, I can't remember, I don't even know if we had chat set up. I think those were before the days of chat, but yeah. email, phone, et cetera. Nobody called, nobody emailed. Like this was a self-directed purchaser who, you know, she knew what she wanted, when she wanted it, and would appreciate the brand and the sizing. We thought there'd be tons of questions. No, they, there weren't questions. Later in, you know, we, we quickly learned the, the types of questions people had were more about shipping and when to expect their package and process related questions. But these were pretty savvy shoppers who, who knew, knew a lot and also knew a great deal when they saw one. Do you, were you all staying? I'm just picturing, cause you said that, yeah, go back to 2007. I, that's when I got an iPhone, like in July, right? It wasn't even a, so when the first sale happened, were you all standing around like one computer, like watching, like where, where did you have an office even? Or were you just, I think about every time I go to send an, you know, send an email out or even sometimes like post on Instagram, I'm like, okay, push the button, like here we're doing it. So we, we did have an office. It was super modest. It was at 33 West 19th Street. Um, and there were the five of us co-founders, you know, in a tiny space. Uh, we definitely each had our own laptops. Um, you, know, you, you don't have engineers sharing. That's true. Uh, we, uh, you know, I think we even had some interns around at the time. So it was more than just the five of us for sure. And, you know, we were we were nervous. We didn't know what, what to expect. And the funniest part, which the irony is they hadn't told me, but the engineers hadn't built out the return process for our first sale. So they figured, well, by the time the consumer receives the first package, tries it on, decides if, if they might return it because maybe it doesn't fit right. You know, they figured they at least had a few few extra days to do the coding for the returns process. So that you know, that's hilarious, and and also kind of typical in a good way of what you can do at a startup. You can be innovative. You can experiment. You can test. You can learn. Not everything has to be perfect when you do your first sale. And I think um, big companies can can be slowed down, and they should be because if a big company makes a mistake, it is a front page story. But startups don't have that pressure of, of mm. needing everything to be absolutely perfect from day one. I mean, you obviously want your brand represented as well as possible, but in, in many cases, I think it's important for startups to just go and learn and test and try and adjust. And, um, you know, one adjustment we made after that first sale was 9 a.m. Eastern was mm. too early. So we changed, I think the next sale we did at 11 a.m. And then we, the third sale we tried, 12 p.m. and 12 p.m. just stuck and then that was the time that, that we uh, we kept doing and it, you know it sounds funny to say these things today because I feel like a startup in 2020 would do run all kinds of analytics and would yeah. probably involve a data scientist and look at shopping behaviors online and you know, we didn't do that probably for a lot of reasons. We didn't have a data scientist. <laughs> there wasn't data out there to slice and dice in, in terms of the types of the type of business we had created. So uh, there was a lot of gut instinct in, in our early days. You know, I, 
It is funny because we do have, I mean, that's where we are in 2020. If there's something we have a surplus of, it is definitely data. And there's so much you can know from the data. And you said it's slice and dice. Like you can cut it this way and learn this and learn that. But does that slow down then the, just what you were saying, like a startup, you know, the first word in a startup is start. Like, does it slow down or, or cause us to mute that? gut instinct. Um, what do you think? What do, what do you think about that? There's data that can be helpful to a business. If it's available, then that's amazing because there's certainly lessons to be learned. So I love data when it's available. In the absence of data, though, I am able to make decisions and I'm able to, to move and rely on a little bit of gut instinct. Um, and I think at the end of the day, it's probably good to have a balance. And mm -hmm. one of the lessons we learned pretty early on in our guilt experience, we brought in an executive coach when we had 10 employees. And this was Alexis, our CEO's idea, because she was a first time CEO and had gotten advice from a mentor of ours, Sheila Marcello, who was co-founder CEO of care.com. And she said, you guys need a coach, bring in a coach and, and they'll help you on your journey. And that was amazing advice. And Alexis was, you know, very forward thinking. And one of the lessons we learned with this incredible coach, Barry Cardin, was that people typically will hire others that are like themselves. And it's so important to have a well-rounded team and to have diversity on every level of thought, of of um, personality, of we used Myers Briggs as a framework, and it, you know, was we recognized very quickly where we had a lot of similar profi profiles and areas where where maybe we, for future hires, should should try to think about bringing in people with different perspectives. And it, I'm I'm mentioning this because it's really important to have those leaders, and we certainly did, um, who had gut instinct and could make mm -hmm. decisions um, based on gut instinct, but we also had data-oriented, introverted types as well, and it's important to, to listen to all, um, you know, all, all different, ask, or it's, it's important to involve all different um, ways of thinking into any company. And so mm -hmm. launching a business today, if there's data available, I'll certainly take it and use it. I think it's is valuable, but I wouldn't, you know, I, you hear the phrase sometimes analysis paralysis. Yes. You know, I'm not a fan of that. So yeah. it's like, okay, let's see the data, analyze it, try to come to a conclusion quickly and go. So I, um, you mentioned in there the Myers-Briggs, which that it is, what a, what a brilliant way to uh, make sure that you're getting people together who think in different ways. And you mentioned something right at the beginning of our conversation about cold calling and asking and putting yourself out there for, I know a lot of the people who are listening, um, that might not be something that they consider themselves naturally good at, right? And I, I mean, there's a special kind of person who loves making cold calls, right? So where do you fall on that spectrum of, you know, whether you want to call it introversion or extroversion or just outright sales and, and how did you, you know, like, how did you make that one of your strengths? Dream extrovert. Um, 
you know, when I've gone through any of, whether it's Myers-Briggs or others, other types of profiles, extreme extrovert, you know, love cold calling, don't, don't take it personally. So if I sent out 10 messages to people and two wrote back, which in the early days of guilt, that might've been the, the initial hit rate. Yeah. You know, I took that as two wins and two positives, you know, and that, and those, those wins might not even be wins. They might just be like, sure, I'll take a meeting or a call. But I, I was encouraged by those two. There's mm-hmm. a profile out there who might take that as, oh my goodness, eight people ignored me and rejected me and don't like me. And maybe I offended them. And, you know, I just don't, I don't process that way. Yeah. So yeah. I, um, I get excited by the two that responded. And then of course I'll follow up on the eight that didn't. And maybe that those eight will um, maybe three of the eight will respond and, and that's great. And I think, you know, that, that's just, that's how I'm wired and I'm okay with that. And I think for people who aren't comfortable cold calling, aren't comfortable with sales, they either need to try it out and practice it and get used to it. Or if they just can't and they've tried and tried and it's just not working, then they need to find someone, um, whether it's a consultant or someone they can hire or a team member to, to do that if it's an important part of your business. And, and for you know, many startups, there is some sort of outbound hustle sales component required, whether that's if it's a B2B business, you need to get on enterprise clients. If it's a consumer business, you know, you, you need to, there's, there's just, I don't, I can't think of too many businesses that require no kind of putting yourself out there and and hustle. And, And in the case of guilt, I mean, that was extreme. My job for seven years was, was really trying to convince what became thousands of brands to partner with us. Uh, so so yeah. yeah, and and I you know initially there was a ton of rejection and that was okay. And then over the years, thousands of brands partnered with us, and um, the sales pitch evolved constantly. And in the early days, brands were excited to sell through guilt because they thought it was super secret and private. And then mm-hmm. fast forward years later, brands wanted to sell on guilt because they liked the fact that it had ten million members and they saw it as a marketing opportunity. So right. go figure. Yeah, isn't it? Well, and I think that's the, uh, I, I think that's the thing to remember is all of it, like all of when you're, when your ratio at first is like 10 outbound calls and two come back that will come back. Like maybe, yeah, maybe it's just a meeting. It's not a full yes that, that, you know, over time that ratio changes and each one of the eight that didn't write you back or said no become part of the story you know so now you're telling you know like all this rejection and then look at this look at the huge undeniable success it was so I really um I like that way of looking at it that for people who do really struggle with that like celebrate the two and just keep working on that keep working on that ratio which actually brings me to the question and of course your your career is so big. Um, And there's so much that we could talk about, but were there any, have you had any experiences, endeavors, um, businesses, projects, ideas that you would classify as like 
in the in the layman's terms like a failure like that one just bombed it didn't work it didn't like did you have did you have any of those you know and and you can think about big big mistakes and setbacks or or kind of day-to-day -day ones and um, I can think about versions of that whether it was in my experience at Guilt or at Glam Squad or these other two startups that that I worked on with a man named Michael Klein um, one we ended up selling before it launched which you know in to some people that could sound wow like incredibly successful and and I guess it was because the engineering and the artificial intelligence and machine learning that that our team had built was so incredible that um, a pretty special one, you know, big company, I'm not supposed to say which one um, made that acquisition. Um, but on the other hand, you know, you could look at that as, whoa, that was a bummer. We didn't, we didn't even get to launch it. We sold mm -hmm. it before it launched. So, you know, there's many ways to skin a cat. I think for me, when I look at parts of my career, um, it's, it's all about learning and, you know, whether you, you, you definitely can learn a lot from your successes and from things you did well, but I think you learn even more from, from things that didn't work well. And what's really important is when things don't work that well, or they don't work period at all, it's really important to, to just take a pause and reflect and, and figure out, okay, what, what did I learn from this? You know, what, what should not be repeated in the future? Where, where could maybe I have salvaged something? You know, was there, were there red flags or warning signs in the beginning? Could we have dug further into data? Um, should we have done more research on a partner that we used to build something? I mean, there's, there's so many examples. And I think it's really important to have that, that honest um, self-reflection um, whether it's just with yourself or with your team, um, and so, in some cases with your investors, um, to really to really make sure that you know I um, you, you don't want to make the same mistake twice, but making mistakes is is very much okay in an entrepreneurial environment, and you want to create a culture where it's okay to make mistakes as long as you don't repeat them, you learn from them, and and you can quickly bounce back and move forward. Yeah, I I think that's. You know that's the thing we hear over and over again, and then the and, and then not taking risks and not doing things because of the fear of failure. Then you just end up stifling an entire, you know, depending on how long that goes, an entire lifetime, right? Um, now you, so what you're doing and. At the, at the beginning, like before we started recording, we went through because one of one of the reasons I found you was because you were also CEO of Glam Squad, which I love Glam Squad. It's a New York based company, right? Started here. But you said, yeah, that was several, several jobs, like several jobs ago. So, so tell me, A, what are you, what are you doing now? Because when you mentioned it, it sounds like, it sounds a little bit different than what you're trajectory was before that and then B like how do you know when to do something different we talked earlier about this about the pandemic and we talked about it in terms of you know your move from New York City which has been your home for a very long time to Florida big life decision it seems that you make these big life decisions 
professionally with, with a lot of ease. So what are you doing now? And what would you say to someone who's afraid to make those kinds of big decisions? You just asked a lot of questions. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so, so, so the last question, I guess, you know, make, making decisions big or small, you know, that's kind of you to say that I make them look easy. They're not, you know, these mm -hmm. are any, any decision related to um, a career, um, re related to your personal life, any, any decisions that involve change can be hard. And so for me personally, I like to reach out to mentors of mine, which, you know, are often family members, including my parents, my husband. Yeah. Um, now my kids like to have points of view um, on, on things too. Um, and, and certainly professional people um, that I've built relationships over time. You know, I used to refer to it as a personal board of directors. So I like to run run things by others. Um, I, I'm also a list maker, so I like to kind of visually map out and look at pros and cons um, of uh, potential changes. And sometimes I find when you look at it on paper, it, it can be pretty clear. You know, what, what's, what are the, being comfortable with the, with the worst case scenario is, mm -hmm. is really important. That's, that's, um, certainly something I think about when, when I make any um, big change. But then, you know, there is a part of me that doesn't like to overthink and can make a decision fairly quickly. And my husband's like that as well. So, um, yeah, um, going back to some of the other questions, what am I doing today? So um, I partnered with an incredible woman named Lisa Myers. And together we have just launched a growth equity fund. So it's a hundred million dollar growth equity fund investing in consumer and tech-sumer companies that are scaling and that have already found product market fit. They're uh, at about 10 million in revenue or more and they're looking for not only capital to accelerate their growth but they're looking for real partners. Mm -hmm. And for us, Consumer can be pretty broad. So we get excited about categories like health and wellness and consumerization of healthcare. And we'll put FinTech in there. We'll put food and beverage in there. Even though we both are very knowledgeable about fashion, we're probably less likely to be investing in fashion companies, meaning apparel or accessories companies, just because we think that the barriers to entry are really low right now. And and the exits are more challenged when you see what's happening in retail and department yeah. stores, et cetera. Um, so it's been, you know, quite a journey fundraising over Zoom through this pandemic, but yes. we're really excited. We did our first close in October. We're off to the races, deep in diligence on a bunch of really exciting and diverse consumer companies. And, um, it, you know, it's, it's a big change from being an operator for me, but I always thought that I would go into investing. So in between each of the changes that I had made in my career, so starting with Guilt, so when I left Guilt after seven years and went to Glam Squad, I did for a moment think about going into investing. I was mm. at that time thinking about venture capital. I've thought about different stages, so I'm not, I, I wasn't married to growth equity stage versus 
pre-seed seed stage, I think, right. because it's been an entrepreneur who, in the case of guilt, you know, built something from zero to 650 million in revenue. I've, I've been through so many stages of a company. And then I actually spent the past two and a half years leading consumer and digital and, and innovation um, through this uh, Project Moonwalker that we established at Allergan. And Allergan's a $15 billion public company that right. just got acquired by AbbVie for $63 billion. So that for me was incredible to see scale like I had never experienced and um, to, to be involved with incredible drugs and devices that I got to learn about in the medical aesthetics business, you know, which was, which was incredible. So um, the, the arc for me is being around and working around consumer companies that leverage technology um, mm -hmm. or tech, you could think of it as tech companies that um, really um, are, are targeting the consumer. So I like B2C, I like B2B yeah. to C. Uh, and, um, you know, it's been, it's been a incredible beginning of a new chapter. And I really love working with Lisa Myers because she's been an investor her whole career. She came from El Catterton most recently and our brains just work so differently in, mm. in the best possible way. And so when we meet with companies, we, we see this and certainly the founders and management teams see that we we can help companies in different ways. And in my case, a lot of times it's, you know, I've made these mistakes or I've had these successes. And I've also been an advisor in over 50 startups over the past 10 years. So I've seen the successes and mistakes that other companies have done. And then Lisa has that perspective from a global investor's point of view. Um, so it's, uh, it's been a great new chapter and, um, yeah, we're, we're at the beginning of the journey. I'm just thinking about all of the, all of the people, um, the dreamers who will have the opportunity to have you as a partner as they, you know, continue to grow and, and how fortunate they are. You're just so um, impressive. I just really, I'm so honored that you said yes to my ask. I just, I was so excited when your message came back. I do have one more question that um, I want to ask and I want to be respectful of your time, but this is, I myself am a mother uh, and, and, you know, I have two kids there, eight and nine. Uh, the pandemic now means that, you know, they they are learning from home. My husband and I work together. We own our company, so we're working from home. Um, being a mother and a, and a very um, ambitious businesswoman at the same time always, I think, comes with its challenges. The pandemic has added new stress to that. Um, and I know that this isn't, I'm not the only one. This is, this is a, a real struggle for women across the country. Um, so any thoughts, any, any just words of encouragement to the women right now who are, are having a, maybe having a hard time or just need a word of encouragement for um, as they wrap up 2020 and move into a new year? They're so excited for 2021. So it, that, it, the fact that it's around the corner is incredible, but it, you know, I would say a few things. One, 
it, it's okay to have a bad day, a bad moment. Um, when we were making the decision to, to move um, from New York to Miami, you know, there were, <laughs> if you happened to talk to me on the phone during a one week time period, I, I could barely have a conversation without crying. And, mm -hmm. and I was so happy to be making the move, but it was just really emotional. And I'd start talking to an old friend. I don't know if that happened to you, but during, during those kind of mm -hmm. spring, that spring, April timeframe yes. where everyone was in quarantine, I, I really just caught up with a lot of friends by phone, something I never had the time to do for yes. so many years. And I would say, hi, and how are you? And are you safe? And is everyone healthy? And the next thing I know, I'd be in tears and I'd be like, I'm sorry, I'm really happy that we're moving, but I guess it's just emotional. And I think, you know, during this strange time in the world where we're having zoom calls in our homes and you know in many cases in our bedrooms sometimes uh, you know I've been on calls with people who are like you know I'm, I'm in a closet right now so my kids you know can't hear me and can't interrupt me and there's just you know, there's been with so much sadness and grief and terrible things that have happened in 2020 for so many people there have been a lot of little things that we can all celebrate. And I think that I've seen not only women, and I'm usually, as you know, a, a huge champion of women, but, you know, I applaud the men as well. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, there's so many people who have slowed down. They've just, because we've had to, because in yeah. many cases we're kind of stuck at home and with fewer fewer things to do and options and, you know, cooking more, um, it, spending more quality time, family time. I think that there's so many dads out there who I talk to and they're like, you know, I, I know so much more about what my kids are learning in school. I can yeah. take them to school if they're even able to go. I, um, you know, I, I think husbands are appreciative of wives. Wives are appreciative of husbands, especially when you have dual, um, dual working couples and, and families. I think, um, you know, for us, there've been many silver linings, but one of them has been just so much more quality time, um, seven days a week with our children, as yes. opposed to in my crazy previous life, you know, during the week was hard. We didn't do family dinners. We just couldn't, we couldn't get home early enough. Um, and, and now it's for us kind of like seven days a week, um, dinner with the family and, you know, that's probably not going to last forever more um, once eventually the world gets back to normal. But um, but it's been amazing. And I think, um, you know, there are a lot of positive positive things that I've also seen come out just just for our family. And we got a puppy, which was something I never thought that I would do. I've never thought of myself as a dog person. And yeah, we have a cute little Havanese named Churro. We're getting one tomorrow. Don't tell my kids. They don't I know. Hope so. Oh, I mean, how many people do we know out there who've gotten dogs? I know. Who, I, you know. Know, I think these moments that people are having, they need a little extra love and cuddles. Joy. And yeah. Joy. Yeah. And why put off? Why put off any longer things that you've thought about doing and and maybe thought, okay, eventually, eventually yeah. I'll get to it. One day, one day. You know, I think 2020 for many of us has made us realize. Okay, now is the day. Let's this do is it. the day. This is the day. Uh, well, I just want to say thank you so much again for spending your morning, your time with me here. I I know that there were so many incredible things um, that just little for even that 
even to celebrate the small moments in this struggle and that it's okay to just cry all the time. <laughs> there we've all we've all had we we've, we've had those moments. Um, we are a huge fan of you and your work here at Success, and thank you so much for sharing your story with us. We'll see you soon. If you enjoyed this conversation, look up an inch or down an inch and check out all of our previous discussions. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are sold. And of course, check out the latest issue of Success Magazine by heading over to success.com slash subscribe and get more inspiring stories like this delivered right to your front door. Be sure to give us a review on Apple iTunes and you can find me at kindrahall.com or on Instagram at kindrahall. That is Kindra with an I. I can't wait to hear the stories you'll tell. Until next time. Until next time.